Alrighty, everybody, welcome back to the Sports Medicine Project. Now, I am without a co-host today. She's left me for dust, but we're making up for it with our very special guest, Connor Gleadhill, who's also in Newcastle as well. Unfortunately, we're still on Zoom, even though we're probably about four or five kilometres away. But uh, how are you going, mate? Good, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, lovely to, to have you on now. Very extensive bio, but I'm going to try and make it down into an elevator pitch and then we'll get cracking into these questions. And obviously today, talking about research, but that is just so broad, like it can mean really anything. And we're going to try and delve a little bit into the weeds and and see how we go. So you're a physiotherapist currently completing your PhD with the University of Newcastle and which is bloody awesome. And I love to say this, you also work clinically at Newcastle sports medicine and we'll get into a little bit of your history because I know you worked previously as a physio as well and you've also established a which we're just talking about off air a research network called research in in practice which is basically amongst many things looking into how health professionals can help researchers by asking more relevant questions that yeah help us all in clinical practice which seems to be the big thing that we all discuss is like research is not being translated but it's awesome to see someone bridging that Perfect. That's uh, it's a big driver to do things differently. I think broadly for me, uh, it it is a driver to to look at things from a different perspective, and that's certainly what my research career has been heading towards, and and what the network's all about. So yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, did and, you? And it's and it's flying along. You know, just to, <laughs> it is uh, going from strength to strength. So, which demonstrates that there's a real need out there for it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What was the the point in your career where, so I imagine you do your undergraduate, you become a physio, you're working in the clinic. Was there a point where you maybe envisioned this happening or you were just seeing a patient one time and you're like, far out, that study didn't correlate to anything that what I just did. Like how did it all come and why did you want to go down this, this route? Was it like an epiphany moment or, or what happened? That's a really good question. I think both, a little bit of both in mm. terms of I had always had, like we do in clinical practice, the frustration with research, you know, by and large that it's very hard to translate that into clinical practice. It's just really, it's really hard to do, even if you've got someone who fits the bill exactly to the kind of, of a participant in a randomized controlled trial that you might be um, looking at. There's just so many other elements that go into clinical practice that uh, aren't described, number one, in a report of a randomized controlled trial, but that are also very different to a randomized controlled trial. So, you know, this person's life in front of you would be very different to the person's life in a randomized controlled trial. Anyway, that aside, the kind of typical frustrations that it was just really hard to translate research into practice. And what does this research that I'm reading, what does it mean uh, Mm. to me? How do I improve my practice based off this research? Um, I also, though, did, I've always had a drive to lead change. And I think I'd had a few kind of attempts at doing that through running businesses and I did genuinely, this is not kind of trying to big note myself, but (laughs) I did genuinely have 
I've had a bit of a drive in, mm. you know, the middle part of my career to generate some kind of local change and, and network and community. And um, I think that's what mm. Ripon is, is it is a bit of a realization of, uh, I like to lead people around me, but it is a very different way of leading. I think it's, you know, really just, promoting the voice of people around me to do something about shared frustrations, do mm. something different and, and, and let's try it uh, together. So a bit of both. There has been maybe a bit of preordained yeah. stuff in there to what's to see what has led me where I am currently. So yeah, good question. Yeah. Good. Very good answer. It's very deep. Philo, uh, philosophical. That's good. <laughs> How before we get into talking about kind of critical appraisal, how do you find you know the the frustration? I think, and I'm sure you you would have went through this. And it, one of the things that as I was saying before, I love that you know you're in the clinic and you've been in the clinic and you spend a lot of time with clinicians. There seems to be, and maybe that's just something that's not really there, but somewhat of a divide between on one side of the camp you've got the researchers, and on one side of the camp you've got the clinicians. And the clinicians think that the researchers don't know what they're talking about because they're not in the clinic and then vice versa with the researchers thinking about the clinicians when they say that this research is really crappy. Whereas we're like, well, we don't really know how all the complexities that go into it. Do you think that that's, that's improving and we're kind of gelling together to try and work towards a common goal? That's a good question. And I mean, to, to again, give you a you know personal anecdote to, your question, I am currently living that mm. divide, uh, clinical practice and research divide. I I think there is a genuine divide. And though th- there's some nuance here that I think it is changing uh, and there's probably people might emphasize so I even know personally, I've probably emphasized the clinical practice research divide in writing research papers. Um, mm. I, I think it depends, like everything, you know, that there may be more of a research than practice divide in some instances and um, in some areas and, and with some conditions and, and you know. Mm. But I do think, like anything in life, they're totally different modes of thinking. And again, this is my personal experience. They're totally different modes of thinking. They're different professions and they almost need to be separate. So yeah. they need to have a divide and that's okay. I think um, the whole thing about my work and Rippon is that it's not about making researchers clinicians and it's not about making clinicians researchers. It's about working together more and the value that that adds. Yeah. 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 I like it. But like, you're getting very deep. We're only just started. You're meant to ease, ease into it. It's, a, it's great. It's really good. I think you're, you're, just the topic that you're researching is, and I think it's fit maybe younger clinicians maybe having it. It took me a while to discover it as a new graduate. Like you don't even realize it's, a problem until you actually get to it and you're like, I'm reading all this stuff, but it's not correlating to what's happening, um, which is awesome. 
So yeah, getting getting stuck in to to you, what does a, a critical uh, appraisal mean and what defines what you would call a good quality research paper? And if you can keep the answer under 20 seconds would be great. I'm sure that's like a two hour long answer to that question. <laughs> that's right. That's or podcasting itself and give me yeah. 20 seconds. Uh, what is critical appraisal? I think it's a it's it's a skill you need to learn to mm. um, it, for all intents and purposes shift the you know chaff from the weight so to to do one step of trying to understand uh what you can throw in the trash and what you need to take a little bit more seriously um all right was that 20 seconds how'd we go (laughs) end it there (laughs) because i think though the next step is something you have sent me before is then understanding and trying to even practically get to the point of applying your research and practice which is you know understanding your external validity and that's not so much critical appraisal right that that's something different i think Uh, and then um then implementing in practice which is something different again yeah yeah do you think for the, the clinicians that are the listening to this or the, the thousand of you, I'm hoping you're all, all clinicians and we saw at least some people that aren't, but do you think that the biggest barrier for people to develop that skill of, you know, being able to appraise research and, you know, kind of define if it's good or bad quality is someone's ability or it's time consuming? What what do you think kind of is that barrier and any kind of tips to to address that because I know like we I do a weekly research review for an email list through our podcast and it takes me a lot of time and I've been doing it for a while and I've done some research out of after my um, undergraduate and yeah it's time consuming so for a young clinician I can see it being a struggle or for any clinician really time time is a big barrier time is the ultimate resource and uh there's not enough of it and critical appraisal I think this, you know, so this has all started, like, I think from that little snippet of critical appraisal that we sent out through Ripon that, you know, you can learn these things at uni as well. And largely it is scratching the surface of critical appraisal. Um, although that sounds like I'm saying that critical appraisal is too hard to do. It's not, and it, and people need to learn it and, and it needs to be done. It's just that do it well yes you're right that there is a bit of a time aspect to it that doesn't mean you can't get quicker like any skill you can't get more Mm. efficient um i think one of the other barriers is knowledge um and how to maybe get beyond that step of what we learn at uni and that kind of really first level critical appraisal you know maybe my reflections there are that just being around very good researchers myself i've really learned to critically appraise things well um not everyone has that exposure so trying to reach out and branch out your your knowledge as much as possible when it comes to critical appraisal actually is important Hmm. um exposure to people who do it well and exposure to um more of it like any skill yeah yeah do you find like being just being in allied health you know that's an important arm of you being a good clinician being able 
to do that because things will be forever, forever changing. Do you, like, have you found as, as you've been, you know, many years out, as people get older, they tend to engage with that less or what have you found anything or heard anything like that? Wow, this is, this is really great. My understanding of this, my evidence base, um, had on with this so yeah that i i don't actually think there is rigorous or a lot of data on the habits mm-hmm. of people uh as their career progresses in terms of critical appraisal so that is a that's a fantastic research question in and of itself nice <laughs> descriptive one and um i'd love if your listeners if if you have data send send it through um Anecdotally, I mean, the only thing I can really say is that I'd hope it becomes more efficient and becomes a little bit just more of an embedded part of your practice mm. that, you know, you can you can do these first initial steps of really separating out what you need to read and critically appraise. Uh, and then when you get to the critical appraisal, or you really start to, I think that's what you get as you move in further into your career is that those next steps after critical appraisal, like how to actually apply this in practice, um, that's what improves mostly as yeah. you get further into your career. Yeah. What do you like for, and I know this is a, certainly a cry from clinicians, including myself at times, probably not as much now because I understand a little bit better, but the, like talking from a researcher's point of view, like what are some of the barriers to creating high quality research papers? Because like, you know, then you see that on on social media where a, a really good rigorous study comes out and there's always people bringing it down saying, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? And it's not as easy as just doing exactly what you want to do. I know, when I did my very first study, even just going through ethics, I'd had no idea it was that long and you had to do this and that and anything that's changed or different, you've got to resubmit it. Like it's just a whole nother world if you've never done it before. Perfect. You know, it's um, people in glass houses, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it is, it is so hard to do good research. It's so hard. And there are so many things that you just don't appreciate until you actually get into the nitty gritty and, and, and you do it. You know, running running a trial takes years to start to begin with. You know, like you'll to get the funding will take years and that's time and effort in, in and of itself. Then when you get to actually running the trial, there are so many nuances and things that you, you have to consider that uh, you'll, it'll never be perfect, you know, that the amount of time and effort it takes to chase people up for data, it's, um, you know, it's a huge job. And these are definitely things that I don't think that will ever change, right? It's a very hard, hard job. I think the, the initial stuff to maybe make trials more real real world relevant right that uh, that is stuff that is changing and can can be changed quite easily and i think it boils down to what we discussed already it's people working together like mm. 
you know, if researchers can step out of their bubble to, you know, really collaborate with clinicians, go, well, what does this question, you know, what does it mean to you? Is it meaningful? Will it change things? How do we actually put this into a trial? Like, is this intervention protocol, like, would you ever do this in clinical practice? Um, what do we need to change to really investigate the, the active components that we're trying to investigate? And those kinds of things can be done quite easily. But back to your point, yeah, it's really damn hard to do good research. So mm. no research is perfect. Yeah, it's just, that's not as simple as just getting 200 people together and go, great, you have to do this, you have to do that. No ethics, and we'll check back in. <laughs> not like that. Do you? And you've kind of touched on it before, talking about kind of the the research question or what you're trying to find is always, you know, the the big one. Like, are you finding or seeing that researchers? And I know you've definitely done this, which is bloody awesome. Like talking with clinicians to see if this is a relevant question. Like, do you think that if we answered this question, it would help you? Like, is that? common for researchers to do that and in the end who kind of does decide the research question like how does it all kind of come about oh great question and you know my caveat here is that i i don't think there's the data to for me to really make an informed Mm. answer about is it common i'm not i'm just really not sure all i know is that to do it well in a collaborative sense is actually really quite difficult. And there's n- there's no real instructions for us how to do it collaboratively and do it well. From my perspective, again, then to, to answer that, I think second part of your question is that how do we um, how do we do it and whose responsibility is it? I think it's both, it's both. And definitely you can't take detract from, researchers have a track record of developing research questions. That's part of the job. That's what we do. Clinicians, by and large, don't. So I think researchers, we've done this within the network. We really try to um, meet that gap, meet that information need that, uh, you know, to, to provide education on how to develop a research question is important. And um, you know, types of things that go into a good research question. And though, I think ultimately when it comes down to whose responsibility is it, it can't be can't be left to just the researchers because that's propagating the same old hierarchical, mm. you know, system that we've started with in um, you know, evidence-based practice and academia and research in general. Yeah. Um, it needs to be a shared responsibility. And again, I think that's what we've managed to do at Ripon, which is really cool. It is. It really is cool. I mean, I sound like I'm really pumping up your tires, but it's awesome because it's the 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 collaboration of them both. And as you're explaining it, it just sounds like you're walking a tightrope between not wanting to go too far to one way and have that collaboration, which is always tricky whenever you bring two groups together. So it's it is it's good. Would you would you say <laughs> this is actually one of Kelly's questions? How how much research that is created do you consider like junk research in quotation marks certainly yeah and yeah. maybe we could have found a synonym for junk <clears throat> oh no yeah the synonym no i'll say it shit yeah garbage <laughs> um i was laughing with one of my colleagues about this question oh look it depends on who you ask um 
and it's a, oh, this is going to be such a I can either answer this question if it could be 99.99999% <laughs> but it also could be down to the perspective yeah um that there's no denying that there is a lot of junk research out there there is and that's a problem and i think it's a problem that's you know created by the system people need to produce research to have careers and you know they need to publish to have careers and that's not right that mm. promotes garbage junk research but um there is also you know kernels of good information in research that may not be useful for many people but some people may find it useful um so it could be 99.99999% or it could be something like 70%, you know? But either way, there's a lot of junk out there. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to, and that just brought to mind, and I hope I don't butcher it, speaking completely off the cuff here. Can you explain, and I've seen this a little bit on, on social media lately, where there, there are studies where they'll have intervention A versus intervention A plus B. And if A plus B does better, they say that it's because of B. So say if it's like uh, exercise therapy for lower back pain versus exercise therapy plus um, spinal manipulation. And if that group does better, it's due to the spinal manipulation. I, I'm sure there is an A, it's like an, an A plus, does that make sense? A plus A versus A plus B. Yeah, this is really good. I would call that it's just a randomized control trial. Um, yeah for the reason that i think when we when we consider a typical randomized control trial we might think of an arm that's called a control arm that hmm. or, or you know yeah let's call it a control arm hence randomized control trial that there's a really important thing that people need to understand that that control arm is seriously important and seriously important to describe that and to, to ha you know when you're reading the study that you know exactly what that control arm entails because it is still it is still a an intervention so it is still a even if it's the most quote unquote inertly you know designed control arm that you can think of in physiotherapy or you know, in allied health more generally, that there is still uh, a, there's a situation of um, these controlled participants are exposed to a condition that, and you know, they're typically exposed to some factors that are involved in the trial anyway. So whether it's being told you're in a trial, right, mm. um, and then they just get left to sit uh, and do nothing at home like that might be in some instances um, like a wait and see uh, mm. arm even that is in and of itself exposure to certain elements um, and they may be active so be being told that you're in a trial may actually be an active component that has an effect mm. get really deep into the weeds here so either way i would just call an a plus b versus a just a typical trial it's a randomized yeah. control trial and though maybe the cool thing to then pick up for your listeners is that be really be 
you need to be really clear and people need to be really clear. Researchers need to be really clear about what that control arm is. Yeah. And we need to get better at describing what it is. Yeah. And that doesn't mean, because I know one of the, <clears throat> the criticisms with that is the further you get into it, it seems to be the more problems you find with, you know, this, this study is great. That's perfect. And then someone picks it apart and I certainly don't think, and I, and I hope you agree, that doesn't mean that we just discount the trial completely. Like there's too many problems, it's, let's throw it away. They didn't have the control arm, right? I guess as and this is one of the reasons why we wanted to do it. The skill is in figuring out what is important to take from that. Bang on. So it mm. is, um, again, it's, yeah, no research is perfect. I mean, there's no such thing. It's, it's just a, a nice rigorous way of trying to unpack a question and come to an understandable estimate of of an average yeah typically like an average effect if you're talking the traditional way we we run trials which is with certain kind of level of statistics frequentist statistics um yeah so the yeah back to back to the question the what critical appraisal is is trying to yes just get to that point to understand what what can I just completely throw out here? Like what studies can I completely throw out? And then when you get to that point, it is about some other things that are like slightly separate to critical appraisal, which you've listed in your questions around what can I take from this trial that is externally valid to my population? And then what can I apply in practice? Yeah. And that leads us to that question of like what, what does internal and external validity mean and how can we assess that? So, again, my caveat here is that um, I'm probably going to start to sound quite nihilistic to your listeners <laughs> that we don't, we honestly don't know much about either. If, if I'm being totally transparent, I think that's, that's good for clinicians is that even the concepts that we um, consider as, you know, hallmark, internally valid constructs within trials um, they're actually not from my understanding is they're not that evidence-based but they have sound theory behind them so these are things like um, you know does bias creep in after or before randomization right um, or does bias creep in in measurement like these things that's pretty sound theory um, but uh, I'm not sure the evidence base behind it. So, so that's an interesting one. That's internal validity. Uh, and then external validity is even more so very poorly understood. But again, it's this and very poor kind of evidence base behind it, but probably some sign theories in and uh, in and amongst it all. External validity is around factors involved in the participants and um, so their age, their BMI, you know, their their gender. Um, do these apply to participants that you see? And is it externally valid to other scenarios? And there's we're developing ways to actually really understand that a bit better. And there's trial transportation starting to develop that is around trying to understand well external validity. And we, it's really hard. If you actually take a hard line view at this, Blake, there's 
not a lot that's externally valid. Yeah. Um, so you, you can look at it that way. You can look at it like you can be nihilistic and think, right, well, no trials apply to any of my patients. Or you can try to take the, have the benefit of the diet and take a really pragmatic approach to it that, so what parts of this trial can I realistically um, try to apply in, in practice uh, based off what I know? And that's hard, but important and needs mm. to be done, right, for practice to get better and for evidence-based practice to, like, improve. Um, so then going back to internal validity, you know, that revolves around some of the – I think you have some more questions that, you know, um, kind of come into internal validity. And it is largely around bias. So does bias creep into the study? Yeah. How, like, with – looking at just the critical appraisal kind of job in general, does it change varying on the type of research, like qualitative and quantitative? And I've got to admit, those studies where they do a percentage, they are just so much, you know, it's like if you do this exercise, it reduces your hamstring strain risk by 82.96%. Like that's, it's so easy to take away. And you see that stuff quoted everywhere. Whereas if it's done a little bit more nuanced, presentation it's probably not maybe a shared around or taken in as much because it's a lot easier to read when it's just as a quick percentage like how does the critical appraisal change depending on those two scenarios and types of research yeah this is a really good one and i like this question um and it probably goes to the the point before that there's a lot about understanding external and internal validity that we actually we don't don't know a lot about we don't actually have a lot of evidence for you know we we think that quantitative methods can be more applied elsewhere and vice versa mm. not not vice versa that qualitative um typically traditionally so this is maybe the first answering like going back to first principles answering your question um critical appraisal or external, let's go external and internal validity for external validity for qualitative methods has not really been a, uh, an aspect of qualitative methods in general. Um, there is a term called representativeness. I think I'm getting that right. I, I hope I'm getting that right. Representability. Um, essentially generalizability. Can these findings in the qualitative methods be generalized? There is a hard school way of thinking um, about qualitative methods that you can't really do that. It's, you know, that generalizing based off the sample and the techniques you employ in your qualitative research, you shouldn't really even try to mm. generalize. Um, but I think regardless, we all read qualitative methods and research and by and large, you know, it's quite fascinating, interesting. You get insight. I think that's what you get from qualitative methods. You get insight into, like, the experience of the world and our patients and clinicians. Then we go to how does that relate to uh, quantitative methods? And I think we typically have used quantitative methods as this way of then really generalizing to yeah. what we should be doing. And I'm not saying that 
that's not the case, that like quantitative methods um, shouldn't, you know, be generalized. I think they should. It's just that I think we've had this traditional approach of like, right, well, you can't, in research I'm talking about, you can't generalize qualitative methods, so don't try. And you can generalize quantitative methods, so let's like focus on that. I think it's a lot more blurred than that. Mm. Um, I feel like I haven't answered your question, mate. So I think it boils <laughs> down to um, really understanding that there are things about qualitative methods that you possibly can generalize, and though there are things that you can't generalize, and vice versa, quantitative, there are things that you can generalize, and there are things that you can't generalize. And um, it's getting to the point of understanding what you can and can't. Yeah, it's it's just I one of the things that and I was speaking about this with Kelly this, this morning. One of the things we were looking forward to, and speaking to you obviously in person as well, and, and other researchers where people that tend to understand it a little bit more are so much more open to say, yeah, it could be this and it could be that. We don't really know, but this is probably the best that we can do. And the antithesis to that is other people online say, yep, this study came out, this is the quote, this relates to everybody, no questions asked. So it's nice to, to hear that someone at your level is still, you know, explaining that these things, we're trying our best, but we still don't exactly know. Perfect. Couldn't mm. you summarise that mm. much very well <laughs> and you put it much more succinctly than I did. So, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. With the, like the, I guess the journals that are around in the world, and I'm sure everyone would have heard of like BJSM, for an example, when an article or, or any kind of information comes out of a pretty reputable journal, can you assume that it's going to be of, of pretty high quality? Like I feel as though the BJSM stuff, if that comes out, it's it's gospel. And I've seen some studies recently come out. There was one on stress fractures and carbon plated shoes, and it was a horrible study, but still published and still promoted. So what can you speak to, to that when it comes out of a, a journal that's pretty reputable? It's just, this is quite black and white that no, mm. high journal was not, you know, high impact, um, well-known journal does not equal high quality study. You yeah. still have to critically appraise and, and take it on uh, merit uh, and, you know, do the work to actually understand what the merit is. Yeah. Do you, like, what recommendation do you have for clinicians that, and I'm thinking, I'm picturing it now, and they, they do it really well at the BJSM. They have a podcast. They have their Instagram. They do pretty well at promoting their stuff. For, for people that see this online or they hear about a research paper on a on a podcast, what advice would you have for them? Is it to note it down somewhere, go and try and find it or listen to someone discussing it or talking about it and then interpreting it? Or is it... I guess I'm imagining like a journey you go on as a clinician. Now I'm starting to get deep. Mm, you rub it mm. off of me. Like the nice. journey from someone he hearing about a study or seeing a statistic quoted from a study and then the end goal being them getting to the point where they're sitting down to critically appraise it. How how do you recommend they kind of do that or what's one of the ways that you think is best? Wow, such a good question. I mean, I, I like it. I think you can't detract from, again, this, this, this you know, going earlier going back to earlier time is the ultimate resource and you can't detract from the fact that if you can have some systems in place to make 
the practice of putting evidence into practice more efficient, then mm. that's good. So I'm not the kind of, again, nothing's black and white, but I'm not the kind of person that would go never take someone trusted's opinion on board. You must always go and read the read every word in the study, um, you know, and and then look at the supplement the supplementary material. No, I mean that if if someone trusted within the profession who you know um, it has experience possibly is maybe one point, but someone trusted within the profession that uh, over time you have understood from consuming their information that they actually are a good evidence-based practitioner, right? If they have given you a snippet and given you their um, opinion and summary of an article, then I think that's okay. That That's efficient. That's a probably a necessary part of evidence-based practice because then you don't, then you waste and you miss out on the time to really delve into articles that you don't you know you're unsure about that said going back to the article is always important like delving into it is always important and uh coming to a decision for yourself um is important so not always relying (laughs) basically just going against what i've just said but not always relying on you know consuming information secondhand or thirdhand uh, from others. So balance, mate, it's a balance like mm. everything. <laughs> and <clears throat> I'm going to give you a scenario, case study of a, a young clinician, so any clinician. So I know most of the people, I'm pretty sure it's a pretty even split, but I think the amount of physios that listen to this podcast is just a little bit higher than the amount of podiatrists, but we'll get the pods back. We'll rally the troops <laughs> between Kelly and I. So Scenario is you're a clinician, you're, you've seen something online, you're reading something, you want to get involved in research or you've got a question, you don't know what to do, where to start or who to go to, what advice would you have for someone? So they read something or something, they're like, I think I can do better than this or I can try and I want to help and I want to get involved. What advice do you have for someone like that? Because I imagine, you know, like we've said, time being a big factor for people reading research. I'm sure people just not knowing what to do, they want to get involved. Do you have any advice for them? I know you you guys do something through Ripon. I'm I'm pretty sure. Is that? I mean, it, this is this is what Ripon's all about. My mm. yeah, short answer is do it, yeah, do it, and uh, just keep knocking down doors until you're able to do it. And there's nothing quite like. And this is probably some more nuance to that answer that um, research engagement is the broad term that I would describe that's useful here and you can be engaged in research purely as a you know evidence-based practitioner just reads research or you can do research as a clinician so you can be anywhere on that spectrum and that's good you know that will help move the profession forward whatever profession you're in so do it and um you know just based on your own interest level and your you know experience start at a level that you're comfortable with and then if you want to slowly evolve more into doing research go go and do it it's not rocket science it's uh just takes time and like we've already said it does take effort so yeah yeah. 
I'll just drop down your phone number and home address and they can just go rock up there <laughs> and ask you what to do. <laughs> yeah, just don't, don't mind the kids and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Do you, like, is that just, is it best for, and we'll obviously put um, your details and link to, to some of your stuff on, on here. Like, is it, can people reach out to you or to their local university or what's the best, the best route and just say, hey, I'm interested, can you help me? I've actually had this conversation before with um, Ben Ben Cormack, um, mm. that and he raised a really good point that I think there's been this tradition of clinicians, you, you know, you must reach out to your your researcher, you know, your local researcher. I don't, I that's again this hierarchical, you know, ethos that I don't think is very healthy to mm. to to run with. So again, that's that's a reason why the network exists is that yeah, if you're just cool. rubbing shoulders a little bit more often, that makes it easier. So yeah, I would agree. Like reach out to people who do research everyone. And, um, you know, maybe I might be speaking for a limited sample of my own, but any researcher would be more than happy to discuss, you know, your questions, your, your drives and wants and needs to be a bit more engaged. And, um, Though I think there is a need for more collaborative approaches like a network, you know, mechanisms that will at least help people rub shoulders together a bit more. Mm. Yeah, which is what Ripon's one of the aims, which is awesome, which is really cool. We had one last last night, which is awesome. Yes, I'm glad you enjoyed that. And again, big hats off to uh, all of the Ripon members, especially our leaders within, within the network who it wouldn't be what it is without this amazing local community and all of the leaders that have pushed it mm. forward. So team effort, yeah. it's, 100%. I was just, I was like sitting, <clears throat> sitting at the back and I've got a, a bit of a cold, so I was sitting up there so I could cough and blow my nose and not draw any attention. But it was just, you had this eye-opening moment where all these people that live different lives, see different patients, have all come together for the one sole purpose, like I want to be better and this is the network that's going to help me do it. And there would have been 20, 30 people. It was just, yeah, it's, it just shows that there every there are people out there, like you said, that you can rub shoulders with that want to do this kind of stuff and, and be better clinicians and help create better research and, and things. It's sounding like a, an infomercial for Ripon. But, I mean, I think, though, if, if I then had to just reflect on any of that, is that it just shows that there is a demand, I think, to have more mechanisms like this. And um, do it. Go, and, go and do it, you know, try it. And, you know, I, th I think it is a, it's a worthwhile mechanism to, to at least try and um, improve collaborative practice and, and improve practice in yeah. general. That's good. Yeah. It is car I think is that a research thing you have to do? I have to declare a conflict of interest because I have no conflict of interest with Ripon and I just think it's just awesome. And like I speak with through the obviously through the podcast, I speak with I would at least speak with 30 to 40 clinicians every week in the DMs of our Instagram page. And if I put something up of a story, like people have reached out to ask that don't live in Newcastle, that just ask what it is and they're yeah, no one else that I've seen, or maybe I just haven't met them yet, or they haven't mentioned it. No one else has something like that that's so consistently in the diary. You guys are doing this once every five years. It's 
consistent and they're on good topics one on acl one on syndesmosis which was cool which is the ones i've been to yeah mm. and it and it doesn't have to be you know you can make i think that's the thing right it, it's it's a concept you know just it's a it's a group of people that are all willing to get better around this central theme and you know it's it's as simple as that like if if you go out there and establish your own please do like if you're interested in in it please do because i think and this is my own bias i think it's a worthwhile mechanism but you know here's the scientist in me that it's not the only mechanism to improve practice so there needs to be more you know like there, there are other mechanisms that you can do it's just that there's something about just a group of people that want to group practice together that um, there seems to be the demand for it. Mm. Yeah. What What would you say is like the quick fire questions, the really pippy ones that people want to know? What are some common myths surrounding critical appraisal that you've heard and seen? That it's, that it, that it takes a lot of time and effort based on, but though this is almost going back to our our um, question earlier, you know, that it takes too much time and effort, so it's not worth doing. I mean, I think that might be a bit of a myth. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's absolutely mm. worth doing. So, and 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 I think there are some things in critical appraisal that don't take time and effort. So that's probably dispelling myth. Mm-hmm. A lot and- of easy stuff to do. Yeah. How <clears throat> how do you think clinicians can get better at just applying research into clinical practice? And that's like a four-hour answer, but an elevator, elevator pitch. <laughs> yeah, there's this is this is a dozen podcasts. This is a podcast series in itself. Um the I think critical appraisal is one step, right? But then you, you then you have these other steps. So that's maybe my broad answer that it's a multi-stage process uh that in and of themselves, their their skills, critical appraisal. There's then understanding external validity, and then there's implementing evidence in practice and implementation of behaviors in practice. Uh, it is a behavioral thing, so you have to take into account. And this is some of the work from from Ripon. You have to take into account all these environmental factors and contextual factors that go into practice that will make it easier for you to do a certain behavior. And that is you know, like the analogy of designing buildings to help people get out from an emergency um, easier and quicker. You know, there's a lot of design that goes into that. And that's, that's behavioral, you know, mm-hmm. implementation um, in a nutshell. Design the processes and systems around your practice that makes it easier to do it. And uh, that's a large part of um, helping the implementation happen. But yeah, there's a lot to discuss there. Do you, yeah, we might have to turn this into a a podcast series. Do you, do you think that where, and I say where very loosely, I'll say, do you think that you're getting better and research as a collective there? Are getting better at it in the sense of, and I'll use this example because obviously there's one billion papers, probably a million come out since we started this podcast on like yeah. back pain and, and ACLs. Yeah. Are we getting, are we getting better at researching these topics? And I can only think, 
now I say it out loud, probably not. But you know how research from what we thought 10 years ago is different to now? Like, is that because we're getting more critical and getting better or is it we're just doing different things? Bit of a multi-stage question, but I guess, are we getting better at researching what we're trying to find? And do you think we will get to a point at where we can be really confident to translate it pretty generally? Hey, two, two points to that question, I reckon, two, two parts. First one, are we getting better at research? 100%. Yeah. Yes. So I go black and white with that question. There is no nuance for me. <laughs> research research is getting better. Yeah. It, it, with time, people are understanding how to do research better and they're then doing better research. But that's that's simple, clear, easy. So I think you can apply this. And, and I um, look back to a comment that I received online uh, a while ago, not, not too in the distant past that um you know research from previous times in you know 50s 60s um we there's this habit of like discounting that research um because it's just old and we should not discount that research because it may be um higher quality uh, and we we just you know should stick with old research sometimes I take that point, but there is an undeniable improvement in research quality over time. And it's actually, it's the scientific process that you evolve your understanding. So it's an important thing for clinicians to remember that, you know, you don't have to always, even though there are some well-established um, older papers of really hallmark quality that, you know, they'll, they'll never go away. Yeah. You have to evolve your understanding and research is getting better. So that's, Number one, um, then the second part to that question is, I think was, um, are we getting better at applying it in practice? Is that, was that the second part? Yeah, that yeah. Um, no, mm. is, is my answer to that, maybe with a bit more nuance than my answer to the first part of that, is that I think we just don't, we don't understand enough about what, how how difficult it is to put evidence into practice. And that's where we need to move as a research community. You know, really the implementation science world is, is really only emerging, you know, in the last kind of 30 years. And um, it's an evolving field of science and we're, it's not been applied that much in the allied health, pain, musculoskeletal world, and it needs to be applied more. And, um, you know, that, that is one that we do need to see more implementation science in our fields to understand yeah. how to do, to put evidence into practice better. Do you think that with, I'm going to say the rise, but it's always rising with social media and, and things like that, like the access to research and researchers has really increased and people are maybe researchers becoming a little bit more maybe well understood in the importance with like and you can go onto instagram and i was just as an example before this um I had like 10 minutes for like a, a lunch and i was just looking on like jared powell he shares a lot of research i was reading a study i put that up on our story like there's research everywhere do you think that that's that's increased and that's a good thing or or not a not a great thing yeah uh, for sure yeah, a, a good thing to have more trusted voices uh, out there 
Although, you know, again, then it's a double-edged sword. It just means there there's more information for people to try to dissect and, and analyze and appraise, and, and that's hard. Um, it's a double-edged sword. But, I yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, and I think we actually missed this question. I wanted to know, this is one of Kelly's questions as well, that what is an intention to treat analyses and why is it important? Yeah, this was... This is a nice one, um, and trying to think about a simple way to explain this, it's it's really important um, that an intention to treat analysis really treats everyone that was initially involved in the trial um, to the same statistical analysis. Um, whereas when people don't do that, you may have a small portion or a large portion of people that don't fulfill the you know get to the end of the trial um, and they've dropped out right so then when you don't analyze if you do analyze just these people that kind of stick it into the trial there may be biased reasons um, why these people stayed in the trial anyway so you know a nice easy example is they may be just getting better anyway and they, they've got a constellation of, um, you know, things about themselves that will make them a uh, m- make them stick out in a trial and fill in the, the questionnaires and report things in a really positive light in the questionnaires. Um, and that may all collect together to add to a bias uh, impacting on the effect. From the trial and so it's in in essence intention to treat is trying to remove that bias um, and that's what trials are that's largely what quantitative methods are is trying to answer questions try with the removal of bias trying to minimize bias and you can't remove all bias so mm, just like in life just like in life yeah. yeah treating patients is like life i wish i had a nice little analogy to finish up with <laughs> That's all I've got. Pretty patient like life, yeah. Yeah. What what advice do you give to to students and clinicians when trying to remain evidence based? How to keep up with the research and effectively kind of appraising information? If you could give a couple of short, I guess, bits of of advice, and basically this whole podcast has answered that question. So if you've got this far, you would have had all your answers there, but. I guess short and sweet as as takeaways. I guess. Oh, good one! I didn't didn't prepare for this one. So, um, off the cuff, I think just the the overarching knowledge that these things skills and you get better, you change your approach to these things over time. So, understanding that if you're doing it now, you know, just keep doing it, and ultimately you. You will get better at it if you just keep doing it. Uh, number two is that I think maybe just understanding that critical appraisal, this is busting that myth, that it's not too much hard work and it's not it's not effort, it's not too much effort that you don't have. These are things that will improve um, your practice and there are simple things, simple steps you can take to uh, – do the first steps of critical appraisal that aren't too difficult. So just remembering that 
you'll get better over time and it's not too much effort. Um, the last one is I think if, you know, you're thinking that there's a lot of garbage out there, you're right. And that you are the person that can change that. So if you want to change the kind of garbage research, the junk research uh, that you may read, um, then get involved. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I like that. It's easy to sit. It's very easy to be critical of research without understanding, like you said, the nuances of years of work and years of ethics and recruiting and things like that. And you can help. You can get involved. And you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can be involved at all different levels. You don't have to be doing what you're doing. You can be involved and only playing a, a small role, but still a significant role and, and to help make a difference collectively. Bang on. Uh, you can, exactly, I think wait, that that statement that I've just said can sound daunting, right? Get involved in research. It's not daunting. It, mm. You can be involved in research on lots of different levels and um, it, it is ultimately only going to help everyone get to the same place together. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Mate, thank you you so much i think we'll wrap it up there thank you so much for for coming on you did mention that you think this could be a podcast series so perhaps that that could be the case just trying to find some time can always be tricky in the diary but importantly if somebody wants to to reach out to you was there a way is it instagram twitter email mail that write something in the sky publish a paper to get your attention that'd be a good one how can they best get in contact with you if they've got questions or something to do with Ripon or something along those lines. Brilliant question, Blake. I'm trying to actually get some balance in my life and not do too much <laughs> social media anymore. Um, mm. Even though I think in my clinical career, it's hard not to um, do that because you sort of need to promote yourself as a, you know, yeah. almost on a, on the business level as a clinician, but trying to not do that email is best. So maybe just, people towards email because it'll take it'll take me too long to get back to you uh, if you try any social media platforms so yeah email yeah and the yeah send you an email if people want to know more about ripping or or even get involved in anything or just ask you a question i'm sure you'll be able to connect someone with sorry connect them with someone who can help them yeah bang on yeah yeah it's about connecting connecting yeah. your dots Awesome, mate. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy your afternoon.